philosophers are just freaks. Um, we say things that are just different from everyone else. We're willing to go down these dark rabbit holes, even if we don't hold the belief. We just want to sort of test. Um, you know, moral philosophy is full of them. I, mean, I started with the, the trolley problem. Um, you know, people getting run over by trains and, uh, you know, uh, killed in these horrible choices. That's partly how we develop the theories to say, well, how would you feel about this situation? How can philosophy help us to improve our reasoning and also to help us understand the crazy and unusual world that we find ourselves in? Well, two gentlemen who have a lot of experience with philosophical reasoning, amongst other things, are Jason Werbeloff and Mark Oppenheimer. They are the hosts of the Brain in a Vat podcast and uh, two people who are very important men in my life. Jason and Mark, welcome to Solutions with David Ansara. Thanks so much, Dave. Excellent. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, the two of you are good friends of mine. And uh, I think that out of all the people that I know, you've probably had the most productive pandemic. Uh, it was a whirlwind couple of years. But a few months into the pandemic, uh, both of you were uh, engaging in an activity that you usually do, which is having a deep philosophical argument. And I, I think it may have been me who suggested it, but I don't want to take too much credit. But uh, I thought, well, why don't you record these conversations? And that is exactly what you did. Uh, so, Mark, tell us about the genesis of Brain and a Vat, uh, what you hope to achieve with it, and 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 what uh, has characterized this uh, this project. Yeah, so you're right that the pandemic provided us the space to start recording, um, and our early episodes are about the ethical and political responses to the pandemic, thinking about lockdowns, whether they're justifiable or not. Um, and as the show grew, we grew into a whole range of other areas. And we started, um, we're a guest-driven show, so we started off by inviting close friends of ours to be on, um, and that just led to more and more recommendations. Um, and so we've now produced, I think, over 100 episodes, um, and most of our guests are based in the States uh, and the UK. And we've had people coming to talk about moral philosophy, political philosophy, um, um, philosophy of science fiction, uh, a whole range of weird and wonderful conversations. And it's put us in touch with some of the, the greatest minds that philosophy has to offer. All right. So Mark, you're an advocate by profession. We've had you on the show a couple of times now already. Uh, but Jason, you're a real philosopher. Uh, you studied philosophy. Uh, you got your PhD at WITS. Um, in terms of the freedom that this podcast has given you, I mean, I think uh, notwithstanding your philosophical training, I mean, I think this has broadened your horizons considerably and enabled you to speak with some of the world's top philosophers. Who have been some of the, the highlights that you've had on the show? Yeah, it's been remarkable uh, for me as a philosopher because I would read about these people and teach these people in my lectures, but now I get to talk to these people, which I would never have been able to do, and have very frank discussions that are quite dumbed down so that anyone can understand, including me, um, and it's been fantastic to have those conversations. Uh, so some of my favorites, uh, Graham Oppie uh, was fantastic. Uh, so Graham Oppie is one of the world's most important atheists, uh, and he discusses what we call the argument from evil, which is the view that God doesn't exist because there is evil in the world, and if God did exist, he could prevent that evil from happening. And uh, what's quite remarkable about Graham is that he is very personable, very humble, and even in the way he presents the argument, 
And even with this credential of being one of the most important atheists, he still uh, approaches the topic with a lot of humility. Uh, he says that he's not entirely sure that he's right, um, but this is the argument that he thinks is the correct one. And that makes quite a nice change uh, for, from non-philosophers who often approach, especially political topics, with enormous certainty. And it's something that we've learned a lot, or it's certainly I have through the show, is to approach topics with a lot less certainty. Yeah, and I think the best philosophers have that kind of epistemic doubt that they are very happy to have their ideas interrogated. And often something I've noticed when I've watched the show um, is that uh, the two of you engage in a very respectful way, but you don't hold back in terms of uh, criticizing the arguments that are put forward by your guests. And so you have this very civil, but uh, very robust uh, kind of discussion. All right. So, you know, I think we, we mentioned the pandemic and one of the topics that was top of mind uh, in the early days, kind of uh, March, April, May of 2020, was the the efficacy of lockdowns, but not just the effectiveness of them, but the, the moral implications of them. And I think uh, applying a philosophical lens to that problem, I think, uh, reveals some pretty interesting underlying assumptions and ideas about, about morality uh, and ethics. So, Mark, uh, what, was, uh, what was your episode on the lockdown about, and how can we use philosophy to help us understand uh, that public policy choice? Yeah, so we called it lockdown a trolley problem. Um, and one of the most famous thought experiments in moral philosophy um, is as follows. So imagine that um, you are standing on a bridge and you can see a train that's uh, driving ahead. Uh, and on the train tracks are five people who've been kidnapped and tied to the tracks. Um, and you've got a capacity to hit a switch, which will make the train swap tracks. And uh, when you do that, the train will avoid the five people but it will hit um, one worker uh, who's busy repairing something on the tracks uh, who's wearing a set of headphones so he won't he won't know that the train's uh, coming his direction and he'll die and the question is whether that's morally permissible and this is the situation that we thought was a, a good analogy for what the lockdowns look like government made the claim that if we stop all um, business activity if we can get everyone locked up in their homes uh, this will yield um, greater um, good so we'll sacrifice some knowns um, in the hope that it will it'll yield uh, you know a net uh, saving in lives, and so we use this as a sort of case for whether we ought to have lockdowns or not, um, and we use it as a case for discussing some of the big moral theories. So the one major moral theory is utilitarianism, uh, and Jason is himself utilitarian, and it's the idea that the right action is that which produces the most amount of good. Uh, a contrary view is a deontological account and this notion that we have rights and that uh, it's improper to intrude on people's rights um, regardless of the consequences that you yield from it that it's not okay to actively kill some people in order to save more um, now so what we tried to do was have this discussion through the moral framework and also paying attention to the actual facts on the ground um, and we ended up turning that uh, episode into a book um, called lockdown um, and you know one of the questions is really whether the government did the right thing and part of the question is there's a moral question but there's also a political legitimacy question is it okay for the state to make these choices uh, in a way that's so big for citizens uh, you know especially people not everyone voted for the for the current government of the day um, this is something that governments did all around the world to varying degrees um, and Jason and I would, would debate this view too. Um, 
one of the best ways we think to get to truth is through a clash of swords. So one of the things that I think people maybe find difficult about when they watch the show is trying to work out what my position is. Uh, I tend to adopt a position for the sake of argument because I think it's a good way to find out what's true from our guests. Um, Jason often will be quite clear as to what his personal belief on a topic is and will say, as a utilitarian, I hold the following and I think you know you need to meet this requirement. Uh, I'm a little bit more opaque in that sense. Um, sometimes you know I might very well agree with everything the guest has to say, um, but I adopt a mock position of disbelief in order to try and interrogate and get the best possible view out of them. And so there's moments as well in our conversation on, on lockdowns where we adopt different points of view to try and best work out what's actually true, what's the right thing to do in these circumstances. Um, it's one of those episodes that I thought would basically be completely and utterly irrelevant within a couple of weeks. I mean, I think everybody remembers that uh, lockdowns are going to last 21 days. And really, we've only just dismantled them now. Uh, it's taken more than two years to get rid of all the, the final flourishings of it. We now no longer have face masks in South Africa, um, which I think you and I are both delighted about. Yeah, and actually, you've had quite a productive output in terms of books as well. So not just the lockdown book, uh, but a whole series of them, which we'll link to in the description below. I'd highly encourage you to check them out. They're very readable and very accessible, even for uh, philosophical philistines like myself. Uh, so Jason, uh, what, I mean, there's the, the kind of this moral question around the permissibility of, uh, of lockdowns and so on. Um, you know, what would you say is the, the utilitarian argument for a lockdown? And what would be some of the deontological rejoinders to that, just to continue the example that, that Mark has raised here? Yeah, so the utilitarians are going to really care about the facts. So they're going to want to know what is the economic impact of a lockdown. So that would be the one track. And on the other track, how many people are going to die if you don't lock down? So they want, to, they, they want the data. And one of the big problems throughout the pandemic is the data has been so contested. Um, and limited and poor in many ways. And so we've only gained a, a stronger picture of what happened as time went on. But even that stronger picture, many people just deny that. They say that the data was flubbed or the data has been read incorrectly or interpreted incorrectly. And there's, there's survivorship bias and there's all sorts of biases that people are accusing the scientists who, who collected the data of, of, uh, of being guilty of. So, so we don't really know what the data is. But the utilitarian says, well, if we knew the data, or at least if we had a good idea of what the data was, if we knew what the, the percentage infection mortality rate of COVID was, for example, let's say it was much higher than it was. Let's say it was like 80%. It was like Ebola. And you didn't lock down. Then you can assume that 80% of your society is going to die or close to that. On the other hand, if you shut down the economy, it seems like far fewer people will die and the impact will be less and the good overall that results will be positive. And so in that sort of situation, you want to lock down. But then let's take a far less severe disease than Ebola, something that has, let's say, a half a percent mortality rate or a 0.1% mortality rate, like flu. You don't want to lock down in that case because the damage involved in locking down the economy is so great that it actually reduces people's uh, quality of life and the duration of their lives. Um, and so that's worse. So it's very important for the utilitarian to work out exactly what that infection mortality rate is and exactly how bad lockdowns are and judge them. Uh, but I mean, don't you have then a calculation problem, uh, which is, I mean, you can attempt to calculate utility and balance 
the, the different ends, the different consequences of a particular action. But I mean, ultimately, you're never going to have absolute certainty. It's like the difference between a grain of sand and a pile of sand. It's very hard to, to, to know, you know, where that appropriate point is. Yes. So in certain cases, you will have certainty or very close to certainty. So like in the Ebola case, you'll have pretty clear evidence that, well, everyone's going to die or almost everyone's going to die if we had like airborne Ebola and we don't lock down. So in that kind of case, I'm not too worried about the decimal points. You know, it's, it seems like overall we have a good idea of what's going on. It's, but in the case of COVID, it was very unclear and it really does seem like it's on the margin. And there, as you say, it's very hard to calculate. So utilitarians have two ways of dealing with this. Uh, so the one way is to say, well, we don't need to know exactly what's going to happen. We just look at the probabilities and we say, well, there's a certain probability that something bad will happen on this track. And there's a certain probability that something bad will happen on that track. So on the lockdowns versus not lockdowns. And we just multiply the probability by the outcome and we get a utility calculation. And that's good enough. We, we do the utility calculation based on our best estimates at the time, which may later turn out to be wrong, but it's as good as we can, we can get. So that's the one solution, which is my favored solution. The other solution is what's called actual utilitarianism, where you calculate backwards. So after the fact, we look back, we look at the data and we see what, what you know, with, with 2020 hindsight, we see what the right decision was, and then we make a ruling. Well, it was wrong at the time to perform the lockdowns or right at the time, based on data we later clarified. Of course, the problem with that solution is that you never know at the time what to do. Um, and so there are these two utilitarian tracks that you can take. I prefer the probabilistic track because it's based on the best information we have at the time, and that's all we can work with. Yeah, and the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said that uh, life can only be understood looking backwards, but it must be lived uh, going forwards. Uh, so, Mark, uh, do you want to have a go at the deontological rejoinder there to to the utilitarian argument for lockdowns? Yeah, so there's two ways in which it can go. The one is you take a view that uh, life is the most sacred value, and so intruding on people's uh, economic freedoms um, is perfectly permissible because you're doing it in service of, of life. The other route is to say, no, 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 what's going on is that you're intruding on people's basic rights by restricting their movement, um, by restricting their commerce, and that you cannot do that, even if you're going to yield great consequences. Um, and I think some of us have strong um, tensions in both directions, right? There's a, a feeling that there are certain things that are just morally impermissible, that a lot of people think, you know, torturing someone if you can yield great benefits out of it is wrong, uh, regardless of the benefits. Um, I think a lot of people feel very uncomfortable about the idea of the state being able to lock people in their own homes involuntarily. Um, and they think that that was wrong, regardless of the good consequences. The other one is, as you say, to think about, well, what benefits could have been achieved through lockdowns? And we try to analyze this in some detail. Um, the one view is that really all you could do was buy time. You can't keep people locked up indefinitely. Even in uh, Jason's Ebola case, if the Ebola doesn't disappear and it's just going to be floating around and it has an 80% kill rate, what does the lockdown do but buy time um, to have a cure? Uh, and so we said, well, one reason that you might want to have a, a lockdown is to you know, reduce strain on the hospital system that people are going to, people who, there's a certain class of people who are going to get COVID. And regardless of what uh, intervention you have, they're going to die. And so a lockdown doesn't help them. 
there's certain people who are going to get COVID and regardless of um, what you do, they're going to survive. So lockdown doesn't affect those. It's only really those people who need a hospital bed and will be denied it because the hospitals are overflowing that you could save. So you're looking at a small category of people. Um, and so that's the bit you have to put on the scale. We had lockdowns in South Africa for you know really long periods of times um, when the hospitals weren't overflowing. The other thing that I think you've got to put on the scales is what happens when you give a government that kind of power? What are they going to do with it? And when are they going to relinquish it? And so if you really do just care about consequences, that's one of those things that matters. We know, for example, that in South Africa, um, the thing I was more scared about was the the roving uh, military and police who were going around uh, enforcing these rigid rules to the point where they killed someone for drinking a beer in his garden, Collins Causa. Um, and the consequences of that are quite dire going forward. Um, I think you see that the consequences of locking people up in their homes all around the world led to massive amounts of social tension. You had months of rioting in America, um, which I think are partly uh, due to this, this repressed tension. Um, so all of those consequences must be put in there, you know, that uh, utilitarians care not just about the particular the particular thing that you're aiming at, but the unintended consequences. Um, I, I probably call myself a moderate deontologist, which is that I think that rights really do matter and that you should be very wary about intruding on them. But there's going to be some cases where the the benefits are so massive or the the costs of not intruding on the right are so big that you ought to do it. Um, and so that's the sort of position that I take on that. And I suppose that golden rule, that's basically founded on this this idea of uh, do unto others uh, what you would uh, want done unto you. I mean, is that is it fair to say that that is kind of within that deontological framework? No, um, I, I think that the golden rule is often uh, cited as common sense morality, but I think one of the major mistakes that it makes is that my interests look like your interests. So do unto others as you'd have done unto you only makes sense if everybody believes in the same stuff and cares about the same things. I think a better rule is do unto others as they would have done unto themselves, which is to tra treat their own interests seriously. Um, and if people are telling you, don't do this to me, I don't want this done to me, then you have very good reason to refrain from doing it. I think the difficulty is that you have a government that said, well, we think this would be good for you. Um, and it's what we would want for ourselves. And we're going to have this one size fits all plan, which was kind of nuts. Um, you know, South Africa is a very diverse place. The idea of nobody gets to leave their house, you know, probably doesn't affect the middle class that much. You know, you could uh, work remotely. You know, we both, uh, you know, started YouTube channels where we could interview guests around the world because we've got access to high speed fiber. You know, if you work as a waiter, you can't work from home. You know, it just meant that you stopped. Um, so I think that um, one size fits all approach is a terrible approach to morality. Yeah, and that's idea of Immanuel Kant's of act in accordance with what you would wish to see as a universal law, I think it's quite applicable. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did notice that many politicians here and abroad uh, were quite comfortable exempting themselves from some of the onerous lockdown provisions. All right. So Jason, Mark mentioned the psychological and mental impacts of the lockdown. I think that's a good segue uh, to the next point that I'd like to discuss, which is on the nature of existence itself and the meaning of life, which is something that I think most lay people would think about when they consider what philosophers do, somebody sitting on a hill contemplating the nature of existence. And uh, you released this book, uh, which was a fascinating dialogue between Thaddeus Metz of the University of Pretoria and Professor David Benatar, who 
has appeared on this show as well. Uh, could you tell us more about uh, the genesis of, of these conversations and and uh, what was revealed in these discussions? Yeah, so David Benatar was a fantastic guest on The Meaning of Life. It's our most watched episode by quite a distance. Um, so David takes quite a pessimistic view on the meaning of life. So he believes that if you want to understand what the meaning of any given individual's life is, you should not just look at the impact that they have among their close friends or family, um, you should zoom out a bit and see what the impact is firstly on their society, which is probably very small, zoom out a bit more on their continent, it's then very small, zoom out some more, what is their impact on humanity as a whole? Well, probably nothing. And what is their impact when we zoom out even further from a cosmic perspective and we see the earth as a pale blue dot, then what is my individual impact? on the cosmos, and that seems nothing. I have no impact whatsoever. And he thinks it's that zoomed out perspective on the meaning of life, which is the correct perspective. And we just mistakenly think that our human perspective in our everyday quibbles and, and problems, that's the correct perspective to, to adopt. But he says that has almost no significance whatsoever. And so, yes, our lives may have tiny little bits of meaning, but really in the grander scheme of things, our lives are fairly meaningless. Uh, thankfully, we also had Thaddeus Metz on the show, and Thaddeus takes a different view. He thinks that individual perspective or that perspective that we adopt when we relate to others in our lives, that's what matters, not the cosmic perspective. And he thinks that there's certain rules which we can adopt or certain standards which will uh, help us to understand what makes life meaningful. And specifically, he, he notes three. It's the good, it's the beautiful, and the true. If you pursue goodness, beauty, and truth, he thinks that your life will be quite meaningful. And he gives a whole lot of examples in the book, uh, like Mother Teresa, or at least a, an idealized version of Mother Teresa, who might be pursuing those three things and so is, is leading a meaningful life. Um, it was wonderful to, to get these two different perspectives, and we presented objections to both, and we presented each other's objections to the other and got them to write this book with us together, uh, and at the end, they have this exchange between the two of them, and I guess your, your viewers can decide for themselves which theory of the meaning of life is correct. Yeah, and we'll put links to all of those episodes down in the show notes, but Mark, uh, you know, I think some people might look at Professor Benatar's arguments and think that this maybe kind of breeds a kind of a nihilistic cynicism. Uh, do you think that that's a fair representation of, of his arguments? I think David's not a nihilist. Um, I think he thinks that there are things that really do matter. So um, he thinks that given that we are on Earth, um, you should try and pursue meaning um, while you're here. You should avoid doing things that are actively wrong. Um, and the the kind of main thrust of his argument about why this cosmic perspective matters is he thinks we ought not to be bringing new human beings into the world. He thinks that the best thing for humanity itself is to go uh, into extinction. He thinks it's better for you never to have been born. Um, and so that's why I think he grapples with this meaning question and why he grapples with this notion of suffering. And he tries to give good arguments in favor of why overall um, our, it'd be better never to have been born even if he thinks that you ought not to kill yourself while you're here. So he thinks death is a very bad thing. Um, and he thinks that one of the difficulties about being born is that you will necessarily die, whereas the unborn don't die. Um, so, I mean, what's so much fun about the, the format of the show 
is that it just takes you down all these interesting little rabbit holes. I've always thought about it as um, making a gigantic tapestry uh, that tries to cover all the different areas in philosophy, but you start stitching different areas based on your interest. So, you know, we had this conversation with David about about meaning of life and you start thinking about death and then we thought who are good people to talk about death with and so we had on uh john martin fisher uh to talk about near-death experiences and we had travis timmerman to talk about um whether death is really bad for you or not you know the classical view is that um it's not bad for you because you're not there for it um you cease to exist upon the moment of death and so you know the epicurean account is uh death is not to be feared so we got to do all these interesting little things. Um, one of the things that, that, that Thad does such a good job of, um, a lot of people take this view, well, whatever's meaningful in your life is whatever you think it is. So just pursue whatever projects um, suit you, and that is meaningful. And I think that's the kind of uh, back of the bumper sticker kind of general common sense view on meaning of life. And Thad has this great rejoinder. He says, imagine someone tells you that, um, the things that they find to be the most meaningful are to keep a very precise number of hairs on their head, to stand in queues for hours on end, to watch um, uh, grass growing in their garden, to rewatch episodes um, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer at Finitum. He thinks it may very well be true that these things bring pleasure to those people, but it's not clear at all that they're meaningful. And so he says that it cannot just be your subjective account of what makes things meaningful. It must track something objective in the world. And so, you know, Jason has talked about truth, beauty, and goodness. And it's about having the right disposition towards those things as well. So if you're a nurse who t tends for the sick, you're doing a good thing. But if you hate it, uh, if you despise your job, you could be doing good things in the world, but it wouldn't be meaningful. You have to recognize the thing that you're doing is meaningful. Um, and it's not clear that you only have to follow that kind of path, that some people have become specialists uh, in the sense that they are wonderful artists, they produce beautiful things that enrich the lives of many. Um, you know, others are scientists who are trying to come up with, uh, you know, cures for disease um, or find out about the nature of the cosmos. You know, all of those things um, can bring meaning into your life. And I think Jason and I both found that doing the show is incredibly meaningful for us. It's one of the things that kept us sane during an insane two years. You know, the idea that we can summon up some brilliant mind once a week um, and and have them kind of at our mercy for an hour, um, ask them whatever we want uh, and and do it in a way that, you know, philosophers are very comfortable with this idea of full-blown combat that's incredibly polite. Um, and, you know, you can bring forth devastating arguments against the guests and they'll come out of it and go, wow, thanks, I enjoyed that so much. That was so much fun. I hadn't thought about those positions before. I really need to revise this. Or, you know, if you're interested in that topic, you should really chat to this other guy who's an expert in the field who holds totally and utterly different views to me. Um, I think one of the problems that we find ourselves in as a society, not just in South Africa, but around the world, is that it's very hard to talk to people who believe different stuff to you, that it must always be this death match, uh, that someone who disagrees with you isn't just wrong, but they're evil. And what we've tried to do on the show is, in practice, countenance that to say, no, we can disagree with each other. Reasonable people really can differ on a lot of things. Understanding the reasons why someone holds a position is really important, giving them the space. So a lot of our technique is to first just understand a position to go, why do you believe this? What are the implications of this view? And then to sort of say, but maybe your opponents would disagree for these reasons or this reason. Allow the person to requalify the position, to steel man them. 
to say, well, you know, you could you could put your argument even better, you know, if you did the following, and then try and tackle the steel man. So that's some of the stuff that we've tried to do on the show. Yeah, just to your earlier point about death, uh, it reminds me of the Woody Allen joke, which is, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, but to your point, Mark, uh, you know, I think that philosophy really gives you a set of tools with which to analyze the world and to understand yourself and your, your own, your own uh, understanding of truth and knowledge and, and so on. And I think something that's really struck me about the show is just how many subcategories of philosophy there are. I only thought there was kind of epistemology and, and uh, moral philosophy, but uh, there's so many. I mean, one of them, Jason, is philosophy of religion, which in many ways cuts across. And, you know, many people might look at the, the discussion around the existence of God um, as being an important philosophical area of inquiry. And uh, indeed, you do have uh, one of your books devoted to that topic. Uh, what do you think is the, the tension there and how can philosophers help to resolve this eternal uh, question around religion? Yeah, so obviously it's, it's an important uh, belief that most people hold, whether they think God exists or not. It's quite core to a person's identity. Um, and so some um, non-philosophers feel quite threatened when philosophers start chatting about this because we talk about it very uh, blithely and in a, in a quite, a, quite you know, playful way, whether God exists or not. Uh, and so that can, that can be quite strange to non-philosophers at first. Um, but I think there's enormous freedom in that. There, there are lots of philosophers who are theists. They believe in the existence of, of a Judeo-Christian Islamic God. Uh, and there's lots of philosophers who are not. Uh, in fact, there's a philosophy survey that's done every, every few years um, uh, by, who does it, Mark? David Chalmers, yeah? Yeah, by David Chalmers. And David Chalmers in interviews philosophers around the world in all the philosophy departments and asks them various questions, one of which is, do you believe in the existence of God? And so we kind of know the distribution of philosophers who believe in God. Most don't, but there's plenty who do. Uh, I think it's about 20% who do. And, uh, and so philosophers debate this. Often, um, it's, as you say, a, a, a topic in philosophy that cuts across various areas. So one area is metaphysics, which is the study of the nature of existence. In this case, the nature of God's existence and the nature of the existence of the cosmos, because God is supposed to have created the cosmos if you believe that God exists. Um, another area is, you mentioned earlier, epistemology, which is uh, the study of the nature of knowledge. So how can we know whether God exists or not, or can we know? Uh, some people think you can't, some people think you can, one way or the other. Um, so we had Graham Oppie on the show who argues, as I said earlier, that God does not exist because there's evil in the world. And then we had another guest on the show who's a rabbi and a philosopher, um, Sam Liebens. And uh, Sam says that <clears throat> God does exist and we can resolve the problem of evil in a very unusual and interesting way which is he says, well, yes, it seems like there's bad things happening around us. It seems like there's evil in the world. People are suffering, bad things happen. But at the end of time, God will look at our universe and the complete timeline of our universe and say, that's like a, a cut of a movie. And I'm just going to remove certain scenes that I don't like. And those scenes will be the ones where they're suffering. And then I'll take back time all the way to the beginning and let people start again so that they're not inevitably going to perform their bad actions that result in, in suffering. And certain bad events like, the, like a, a volcano erupting and causing mass suffering won't happen in the next rerun. 
And so what, what God can do is just keep rewinding time and keep playing it forward and seeing whether in the end there's a cut of the movie with no suffering at all. And that will be the final cut and God will erase all the previous cuts and just keep the movie with no suffering. And so although it seems like bad things are happening now, in the end, they would never have happened. And so God, sa God says, well, there's no evil in the world and oh, he can exist anyway. Very interesting. Well, you know, some people might think that that's a controversial topic, but I think philosophers are naturally drawn towards these kind of contentious ideas. But sometimes, Mark, that gets into a little bit of trouble. And you had some controversies uh, that arose from one of the episodes of your show. Could you tell us uh, more about that and how you responded? Yeah. So one of our guests, uh, Stephen Kirshner, did an episode on sexual taboos. And um, the episode um, got picked up by an account called Libs of TikTok. And they uh, extracted um, about, about a minute from it. And that minute got viewed a million times and got picked up by Fox News. Um, and reporters were sent to his campus in New York um, and interviewed students and there was this huge outcry and um, the university basically have stopped him from coming to campus. He's got tenure so they can't fire him, especially for things that you say. He'd written a book uh, on the topic of sexual taboos um, and so this had been proudly displayed on their website until, <laughs> until our episode aired and they um, secretly kind of removed the reference to the book. Um, it was an interesting thing for us because it's difficult to engage in a conversation with someone who's clearly quite brilliant um, and then seeing them being punished for expressing controversial views. Um, and so, you know, we reached out to Stephen, we're, you know, very, uh, you know, concerned about what happened. He said to us, you know, I want you to know that, you know, I, I would without a doubt do the interview again, regardless of the repercussions. And one of the things that I think was very positive about it was that academic philosophers um, almost unanimously backed him to say, hold on a second, when you're in the area of moral philosophy or sexual ethics, people are going to say controversial things. And that's partly how we find out what's true and how we test out our intuitions. And people have to have the space to do that. I think what people did was that they attributed false views to Stephen. Um, I was chatting to, to a friend about this and he said, philosophers are just freaks. Um, we say things that are just different from everyone else. We're willing to go down these dark rabbit holes even if we don't hold the belief, we just want to sort of test. Um, you know, moral philosophy is full of them. I, mean, I started with the, the trolley problem. Um, you know, people getting run over by trains and, uh, you know, uh, killed in these horrible choices. That's partly how we develop the theories to say, well, how would you feel about this situation? Um, and yeah, it's a thought so, experiment. Exactly. It's a thought experiment. And so his thought experiment is what got him in so much trouble. But uh, 150 philosophers signed an open letter backing him. One of them was uh, Peter Singer, um, and who was involved in his, his own controversy later, and we were able to help him out in that front. Um, but Singer is regarded as the most influential philosopher in the world. Um, and I think the, the value for Steve was that suddenly a whole bunch of people, you know, found out about him and found out about his work and could engage with it. Uh, Jeff McMahon, who's one of the other great living philosophers we've had on the show a number of times talk about uh, the philosophy of war and the nature of personal identity uh, also did an interview about the importance of free speech on this topic um, we also did an episode um, with Raja Halwani on the philosophy of love and we produced um, a book on on that topic as well um, so on love and desire and you know this is one of the things that I think people will encounter in their lives all the time is um, 
how do you deal with loving relationships? What's the nature of love? Um, should certain kinds of love be forbidden? We talk about um, different kinds of sexual orientations, different kinds of love that might be toxic, um, the difference between romantic love and, and love between friends. Um, so, you know, we think it's important to be able to talk about anything. Um, and, you know, in my uh, day job, you know, I do a lot of work on free speech. Um, and we think that that's just absolutely vital to find out what's true is that you have to let people speak their minds. Um, there should be very few restrictions on that. Um, the one that I, I personally think is important is when you're calling for others to be harmed, uh, when there's an advocacy um, element and an incitement element, that's a reason to restrict speech. But without a doubt, um, that's not what's happened with any of our guests. What is interesting as well was, so YouTube initially banned our episode. Um, they then reversed the decision. Um, and uh, um, a couple of days later, due to more new pressure, um, reversed their reversal and banned the episode. Spotify um, and the other podcasting accounts kept it up. And I think because Peter Singer had spread um, the, the episode to get people to kind of understand what was actually said, uh, it was enormously good for the show. Um, and it sort of led to us being very well known in the academic philosophy community in the States and in the UK. Um, and we had a lot of people reach out to us and saying, thank you for, for backing Steve. We, we did a special episode where we talked about why we host people, you know, talk about controversial ideas. You know, throughout the episode, um, you know, we think it's incumbent upon us to disagree with our guests, kind of regardless of what they say, and to understand their positions. And that's exactly what we did in that episode. Um, but we had people from all different sectors, all different political stripes saying, you know, thank you for standing up for academic philosophy and we'd love to be on your show. Um, so it was a tense time, a difficult time, and I think it still is for Steve, um, but it was ultimately one of those things that was good for Brandon Nevat. I think what was quite remarkable was that the philosophers that backed Steve disagreed with his position. So he takes a certain stance on sexual taboos, which most philosophers disagree with. I'd say almost every other philosopher disagrees with, but that didn't stop them from supporting Stephen Kirshner's freedom of academic speech. So among philosophers, we value disagreement. And that seems to be something that's really important for people to import into non-philosophical discourse. I work within the political sphere outside of my work as a philosopher, and I just encounter over and over again enormous uh, shorthandedness in the way that people understand each other's positions. Uh, they're unable to give each other the respect and ability to in uh, to enunciate their position fully and to really look at the grays in that position and the detail. Uh, instead, people just call the other side an idiot and say that they're evil and totally uh, misle misled um, and, and dishonest and insincere. And I think this approach that philosophers have to understanding issues which is much more nuanced and supports disagreement is something that non-philosophers could import into their discussion. Yeah, and I think that would vastly improve public discourse. But, you know, unfortunately, something that I've realized is that a lot of political discussion and debate is not really a rational exercise around uh, determining costs and benefits and optimal policy outcomes. It's really kind of about asserting your tribalistic loyalty, the in-group and the out-group. Uh, so there's quite a lot of psychology going on, I think, in, in political discussions. Um, but now, I mean, I think what's been amazing is you've been able to penetrate this academic world and you know what used to be confined to the hallowed halls of the ivory tower uh, is now on full display for for all uh, to view and engage with and i think there's there's something quite uh, democratizing and encouraging about that but now jason you come from a formal 
academic background. Do you think that academia itself is still a conducive space for the kind of uh, deep philosophical inquiry that we've been talking about today and the engagement with these very controversial concepts and ideas? In certain ways, yes, but in certain ways, no. Um, so the institutes, so the universities and the colleges, um, I think were, were much freer places of inquiry in the past. So they could discuss any issue. Uh, for example, Stephen Kirshner on sexual taboos has been discussing this since 2005. Uh, you know, it's, these things have been discussed for long periods of time um, without any repercussions, um, which is a good thing. Um, but in the last 10 years or so, that landscape has shifted in two ways, uh, both on the left and the right. So on, on the left, there's this woke ideology that has popped up and has severely curtailed what people can say. So uh, philosophers are, are canceled, um, just like other academics, for saying things that they shouldn't have said or that other people believe they shouldn't have said. And of course, philosophers are very good at saying things they shouldn't have said. Uh, we, we entertain ideas that are nuts just for the fun of it, because it's important to do so. You need to understand limiting cases to understand what's in the middle. So philosophers do this all the time. And so they are highly prone to being canceled by the left um, for being racist or misogynistic or homophobic or transphobic or whatever it is. Um, but on the right as well, I mean, our detractors uh, in the Stephen Kirshner episode and those who found fault with it were on the right, not on the left. Um, and so, you know, you get this, this strong, uh, the strong violent um, discourse that happens online from the right as well. Uh, people were saying that he needs to be thrown into a wood chipper. I mean, the comments were horrendous um, and totally unfounded because Stephen Kirshner wasn't even enunciating a view that they thought he was enunciating. He was just floating this as a position which needs to be questioned. Uh, and, and viewers can, can learn more about what that position is if they go and listen to that episode on Spotify with Stephen Kirshner. Um, but, but the point is, it seems like both on the left and the right, there's enormous intolerance around free debate. Um, and that has uh, penetrated the university. And um, the university now is, is under such pressure to, uh, to kowtow to both sides that certain topics are just not up for debate, or the university will take a certain stance on that position, and no philosopher in that university could, could enunciate anything else. Um, and either way, it's a problem because it curtails free speech and free academic enterprise. Um, so there are certain areas of philosophy that are untouched, the pure logic disciplines, for example, um, understanding uh, the metaphysics of possible worlds. It's very hard to see how that would be racist on the one side or uh, pro-lib on the other side. Um, it's, it's, it, it, neither side can really take, take, take an issue against it. Um, but, but those areas are even then being crept and crept and crept upon. And it seems like the area of inquiry that philosophers can explore within the university and within academia are smaller and smaller and smaller. What's really nice about our show is that there are no such restrictions. Um, I'm no longer associated with the university. I used to lecture at the, at the University of Advertisrand. I no longer lecture there, partly because I want the freedom to explore whatever ideas I want to explore without having the threat of losing my job. Uh, and Mark is uh, a very proud and uh, happy person to, to speak about whatever views he holds, uh, or, or at least question views uh, without fear of reprisals. Um, and so the two of us are, are quite fearless in what we talk about, 
Um, and that just isn't something we could do if we were at an institution. Yeah, and uh, I probably don't have the same philosophical rigor as the two of you who host Brain in the Vat, but that is kind of the spirit that I've tried to approach this show is to have kind of calm, reasonable debates around uh, quite controversial ideas. Um, but now, you know, just on the topic of academia, I did have David Benatar on the show, and uh, it was quite a lamentable episode, actually, not my kind of usual sunny optimism that I try to instill on, on solutions. But, uh, you know, I think what is sad about what he detailed in his book, The Fall of the University of Cape Town, was just how this kind of uh, academic environment has been constrained. And, you know, Mark, uh, you and I uh, used to uh, enjoy the Philosophy 101 lectures, uh, the ethics lecture by Professor Benatar back in 2002. Uh, you subsequently went on to do a lot more uh, applied philosophy and uh, political theory courses as well. Um, but, you know, David Benatar inspired you to become a, a vegetarian as well. Uh, so in many senses, philosophy does really change your outlook on life and, and your behavior. Uh, what has philosophy done for you in terms of how you've approached your career and, and your personal life? Yeah, so I think you're right to say that it can have real world effects, um, that once you start to see the repercussions of your choices, you want to try and lead a life that's authentic and in line with your with your moral views. Um, it also just provides you with this incredible ability to see through bullshit. So, you know, philosophers are very good at distilling things. Um, we don't like jargon, we want absolute clarity. Um, we want to deal with you know, arguments and, and counter arguments. And I think what you find a lot, um, you know, in public discourse is just noise, you know, bluster, um, you know, and in my profession as a lawyer, we have people on both sides who kind of try and cloud the issue, kick up dust. And so that training in philosophy has just been absolutely essential for my career, um, that there's so much overlap in good legal thinking and good philosophy. Um, so it's made me much sharper and quicker. Um, and the show has been amazing as well. So, you know, when you have to go toe to toe once a week with someone who's an expert in their field, um, and, you know, there's only so much research that we can do, you know, we read up beforehand, but a lot of the magic happens in the moment, you know, it's, it's improv theater in a way. Um, and I felt this really pay off recently. I was in the Supreme Court of Appeal um, arguing on whether the old South African flag should be banned. It's a controversial case. I think that I think people feel very strongly about on both sides. Um, and I had uh, five judges, you know, what's kind of regarded as one of the most important courts in the country, um, who asked me questions about the case. Um, and I felt that it was much easier for me to go toe to toe with them and answer those questions um, in a crisp, clear, respectful, civil manner, because of what I do on the show. Um, because I have to do that, you know, on a very regular basis with people who know much more about a topic than I do. Um, and one of my opponents in the matter said to me that you know, he was very impressed with this ability to kind of do this in this calm, considered and quick manner. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, um, you know, that's a nice thing to get from from your opponents. I mean, there's a nice thing about law as well is that, you know, we clash swords with each other, but we try and do it in a way that's civil and polite, that we could be opponents one day and, you know, allies the next. Um, so, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, mirroring in terms of my professional life and my philosophical life. Yeah, and I think what's very useful about philosophy is it enables you to be somewhat detached from an idea. So when somebody's arguing against you, it's not a, a personal affront, uh, and it gives you that that distance that and that critical uh, space to to really interrogate the arguments. 
Um, but now, Jason, in addition to your uh, podcasting and philosophizing, you're also uh, quite a, a prolific sci-fi author. Um, you've published a number of books in the past, and that's really uh, given you some expertise as well to publish uh, this conversations about philosophy series as well. Could you tell us more about the publishing industry? How did you get into it? And what's kind of your productivity function? How do you produce on such a prolific level? Well, sci-fi is cool. So it's the idea was really to write what I love. Um, and yeah, the best way for an author to get his work out these days is to self-publish rather than publish through traditional publishers. Uh, there are, of course, success stories through traditional publishers. There will always be counter examples to a claim like that. But on the whole, you'll do better as a self-published author um, if you put in the work. And the work involves marketing your books and publishing them in a professional way, getting them properly edited, a good cover designer, um, a list of, of beta readers to help you uh, improve the work. Um, and basically, my strategy was to produce a lot of books. Um, so there's, uh, there's a movement within, um, within authors to produce uh, a book a month. Um, I was not that prolific. I was doing a book every two months, uh, a novel every two months. Um, but, but still, that's more than kind of the traditional model of, uh, of publishing maybe once every few years. Um, so the new model is kind of almost like a Netflix model, uh, but, for, but for books. You want constant output so that people are always uh, reading your back catalog the way people on Netflix will go back to season one of Stranger Things when the new season comes out. Um, so it's the sort of subscription model of publishing. Um, and I managed to keep that up for a few years and push out 14 novels. Um, but it's tough. And eventually I burnt out. And now I focus more on the philosophy books. Yeah, well, you are writing books faster than I can read them. So hopefully one of these days I will catch up. But one of those books that you did release on the topic of, of sci-fi is on time travel. And that's related again to the podcast episode. But uh, that, that's quite a, a thorny, uh, abstract, metaphysical uh, kind of concept. Uh, what was that episode all about? So we start every episode with a thought experiment and the classic thought experiment for time travel is can you go back in time and kill your grandfather because if you could then you kill your grandfather but your grandfather would not beget your father who would not beget you and so the idea is well it generates what seems like a contradiction so some philosophers have said well because of that we don't like contradictions philosophers never like contradictions we need to resolve that contradiction by saying well there's no such thing as time travel you could never go back in time but other philosophers have resolved the apparent contradiction in other ways so one way is through a parallel universe theory so the idea is there's multiple universes and when you go back in time and kill your grandfather it's not exactly your grandfather that you kill it's a parallel grandfather and it's a parallel universe. So the universe splits off and the grandfather who dies is not the one that begets you. It's the one that would have begotten the parallel you and that parallel you never exists. So that's one way of resolving uh, the grandfather paradox. And then we discuss parallel worlds and whether they make sense and in what sense they exist if at all. Uh, and then there's other solutions and other puzzles that come about when we discuss time travel. So for example, could you have circular loops in time um, and you see this a lot in Hollywood movies uh, loops happen often in Hollywood movies um, so for example the day after tomorrow uh, with Tom Cruise is one of my favorites there's loops in that movie um, and most philosophers like David Lewis who's a very famous 
analytic philosopher, he thinks that you can have loops in time. Um, and we explore those ideas in the podcast and in the book. Okay, well, we are running out of time uh, and also of my own uh, mental capacity to deal with such thorny topics. But I wanted to close the conversation, Mark, with a discussion maybe about how people who are interested in philosophy can go about engaging with this fascinating world of ideas. Um, you know, you have some formal training at university, but uh, you know, not a PhD holder, but you hold your own with uh, PhDs from around the world uh, on the show. So uh, what can philosophy teach you? How do you get involved in it? What's the best way to incorporate philosophical thinking into your life? Well, I think one of the things that we've seen is that universities no longer have a monopoly on knowledge. Um, and one of the things that our guests have often said to us um, once we stop recording is that they feel much freer to have conversations with us than they do in their own classrooms. Um, we're not the only philosophy show in town. So I, of course, would tell people, go and have a look at our back catalog, go and see which um, you know particular topics kind of excite your mind and start there. We're long form, so we're, we go for an hour. We think that's a good amount of time to get into a topic without it being overwhelming. The guys who really sort of started the movement are Philosophy Bites. Um, and we had David Edmonds uh, on the show to talk about Wittgenstein and talk about his show as well. They, those episodes are short. They're like 15, 20 minutes. Um, they've released about 200 of them on a huge range of areas. Um, I think my advice would be, we've given you some idea about the kinds of topics that philosophy can touch. It sits at some level of abstraction over things. But if you're interested in in art, for example, you might think, well, maybe I should start with, you know, are there such things as good tastes or what is art? Um, can I brag that my taste is better than my friend's tastes? Uh, a lot of people have pretty strong views on morality. You know, it's, they have to make moral decisions all the time. And it might be interesting to know, well, what's the best account of morality? What kind of life should I lead? What kind of person should I be? So I would suggest following your interests. Um, my interests used to be quite squarely in the moral camp. Um, and so a lot of my background is in the moral and political. But the more that you dig, I found that the, the broader my net has become, that I've started getting interested in some of the more esoteric questions, like things like time travel um, or possible worlds. Um, as I say, if you can gain that curiosity for the world where you just want to know things for their own sake, it has all these additional benefits. You just wind up being a smarter, more interesting, curious person. Uh, and I think ultimately one of the best ways to lead a meaningful life. And so... I would thoroughly encourage people to go and try and find some aspect of philosophy that gets them. One of the things that I think is an excellent place to start, there's a great channel called Crash Course, um, which has these 10, 15 minute animated episodes. And the one on philosophy is outstanding um, and tries to cover all the areas of philosophy. It's pretty, um, pretty rapid fire. Um, and one of those things that might reward um, repeat viewing, but an excellent place to start. Any final words from you? about the power of philosophy, Jason? Philosophy is awesome. Um, and it might sound like a lot of these debates are quite highfalutin and difficult to understand, but the point of our show is to make sure that there's no jargon, that it really is understandable by lay people. It's aimed at a lay audience. Um, and I just feel like anyone who spends a lot of time reading philosophy, watching philosophy, listening to philosophers, enriches their lives. Um, Thaddeus Metz, one of the guests on our show, who discussed the meaning of life, he gives this thought experiment about the pig farmer. The pig farmer who gets up in the morning and grows some pigs and slaughters these pigs, gets up the next morning and grows some pigs and slaughters these pigs. And with the money from, from the slaughtered pigs, he buys more pigs so they can slaughter more pigs. 
and then he passes his pig farm down to his son who becomes a pig farmer. Um, he asks, well, where's the meaning in their life? And one way to find meaning is during the pig slaughtering or between pig slaughters, they could be listening to Brennan of that. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, we, we can spend our whole lives on this, on this, uh, this rat race or this pig race, uh, trying to, trying to survive and earn money and hand that money down to our children who will do then the same for their children. But during that life, you want to, you want to live your life in a way that you flourish and not just survive. And one way is through philosophy. Well, Jason Webloff, Mark Oppenheimer, I wanted to thank you both very much for coming onto the Solutions Podcast and for showing us the power of philosophical reasoning and how it helps you to understand this mad world in which we live. I have put a link down to Brandon Avat, as well as the various books that we spoke about in today's conversation. So do check out both of those. My name is David Ansara. This is the Solutions Podcast. Until next time, take care.